Hello, I'm Chris Neeland, host of a new podcast, Cult Brand Secrets, brought to you by The Gathering and Evergreen Podcasts. The Gathering is a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders looking to reap the benefits of cult-like adoration. Each year, The Gathering brings together disruptors from around the globe to learn from and to celebrate the leaders behind iconic brands like Marvel, Skittles, Beats by Dre, Yeti, and the Dallas Cowboys. For the first time ever, this podcast will give you access to some of the exclusive business leader learnings from the gathering's past events. Today's presentation is a bit different than the ones that we've recorded previously. You know, while we usually feature cult brand leaders telling their tales of how their brand has earned cult-like status, John Windsor's different. He's an industry thought leader, and he's a master of the cult brand principle of co-creation. Most interesting to me, John is a pioneer. He's an innovator. He's an early adopter of crowdsourcing. Now, we were thrilled to have John present to us at the 2020 gathering because his expertise is helping brands become more successful by thinking differently about their talent management strategies. John has done a lot of interesting things over his nearly 40-year career, but most notable to me is his creation of Victor and Spoils, which really became the model for open source creative development. And now he's working alongside Harvard and NASA and Communo and a host of other smart people to create tools and certifications and to provide guidance on how companies can go further faster by more properly utilizing world-class specialists on a contingent labor basis. As you'll soon discover, John is brilliant, but he's also remarkably humble. He's overcome personal tragedies, which he's also vulnerable enough to share with us, and he's learned how to live this full and exciting life. I'm so grateful that he took time from his busy schedule to share some advice, and I'm confident that he can help make us better leaders and better human beings. Have a listen. I'm so psyched to be here and especially excited because I talked to my dad this morning. My dad said, you remember the last time we were at the Fairmont Hotel in Banff? I was like, no, I don't remember it. He's like, well, you were 12 years old and we were traveling across the country. My dad ran some newspapers in Illinois. I grew up in Illinois and we were in our station wagon cruising across the parks up here and it was a huge rainstorm. So we slept underneath a picnic bench and we were really disgusting, myself, my mom, my dad, and my two siblings. We came to the Fairmont. My dad, you know, had done pretty well in the newspaper business and drove up in the station wagon and asked to get a room. We were not let in the building. We were just too much of dirt bag, too much soot and dirt on us that they, the Fairmont let us in. So super nice 45 years later to be allowed inside the building. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, so I want to talk a little bit about a journey. I've been on this crazy journey. I've learned so much in the last few years, and I'm super, super grateful for so many people to allow me to, to take this journey. Yeah, I've been in the outdoor industry for a long time, board of directors of, of Black Diamond Equipment, did a lot of skiing. Actually, just last year, went with Travis Rice and Jimmy Chin to ski some new lines up in Alaska. Super amazing. But this trip, we had 14 of us skiing some really cool stuff. We did everything right. We were pro team, guides, everybody. 
built a Roush block test to test the snow, gonna ski a new line down through these couars, out of this open, and down through another set of couars, about 1,000 feet. The 12th skier was Kim Miller. He's president of SCARPA today. He started skiing down through this couar and the crack happened. The crack fissure started right across us and went right between my best friend, Bruce Rogers and I. I grabbed him and said, let's ride this out, right? Because it was a small fracture. Unfortunately, what happened was a sympathetic fracture and above the cliff band, it fractured nine feet deep and a thousand feet across. So as you can imagine, that kind of snow coming down on us, 12, 14 of us took the whole ride. Two people who were spotting on the cliff got pushed off 50-foot cliff. We took a 1,000-foot ride over another cliff band of 30 feet. I just remember going upside down, right side up, upside down, in the air, and I landed with my head out. There were three complete burials. We were able to dig ourselves out and get those guys out. A few injuries. It was a big Category 3. It was such an amazing experience, and it still affects me today. The, the reason it affects me, and, and it's been really a driver not only in my social life and in my life in general, but also in business, is the importance. You can have the best team in the world, right? The most skilled team, the most knowledge, and shit happens. It doesn't matter, right? So it, it, what matters is what happens afterwards. What do you do with that? Meet Bridget. Super cool lady. Great surfer, great skier, great climber, professional triathlete, just an amazing human being. As I'll talk about in a few minutes, I sold my company, Victors and Spoils, to Voss, and I was working out of Paris. We've had a house in Mexico because we're really surf, surf bums, you know, dirtbag surfers. And she's my surf partner. About five years ago, we were living in Mexico and I was working out of Paris and Bridget got really sick. She uh, got really depressed and couldn't get out of bed for a while. We'd built a school there and our kids were going to school. We'd really, you know, love that place. Uh, we moved back to Boulder, where I'm from, and Bridget became not only depressed, but manic. So we went on a three-year journey of bipolar, which was really, really scary. Bridget, over a three-year period, was in eight facilities, a few suicide attempts. And then on July 25th, two and a half years ago, I was in a green room coming out on stage like this. And at the last minute, right before I went on stage, I got a call from my son, Harry. You know, he's 16 at the time, and I'm really excited to talk to him, really pumped for the speech. And I pick up the phone and I say, Harry, what's happening? He's like, Mom just shot herself in the head. I found her body. I called 911. So, as you can imagine, you know, lifetime with somebody, your best friend, living a global life, thinking that this is it, man. We made it, right? We've done everything. I've built businesses. I've sold businesses. I've skied new lines. I've surfed new places. And I have this amazing family, this partnership, and we're going to go hang out and be bums in Mexico. And all of a sudden, that changes in an instant, right? During that three years, I didn't, I quit Havas and started thinking more about, you know, how do I take care of Bridget during this illness? really, really difficult to do, and especially for my boys. But what I've learned is that at the darkest moments come the light, right? In those scariest places, I'm an alpine climber too, and right before dawn, it's just so dark and it's super scary if you're up on a climb, right? You're cold, you're shivering, it's going to get light again, and that's when it really happens. Fortunately, I met an amazing woman, Emily. Emily I've known for 25 years. She's a rock star. Her ex-husband is bipolar as well. So we have a lot in common. She was a great friend of Bridget's. 
So about nine months ago, we got married and uh, we're building a family together. Thanks. I think that's the reality, right? With, with, with disruption and, and tragedy, and Tim and I were just talking about that, there's no other way but to go forward. You can't sit around and wallow in stuff. You can honor the past, but you gotta go forward. That's the only thing that matters. But the reality is no matter who you are, you will be disrupted. I come from a newspaper family, fourth generation. I love this chart, right? I'm sure if we extended this beyond 2011, it'd be way below the 1950s. So it doesn't matter what industry you're in, you're gonna be disrupted. I started my business career as a magazine publisher and was really into, because Bridget was really into triathlons, I bought a magazine out of bankruptcy called Women's Sports and Fitness. And at the time, 1988, Nike was the only advertiser that would actually put a woman in an ad. Everybody else, including Reebok and Adidas said, women will never do sports. It's kind of crazy to think about now, right? What I was interested in really though was, was it, we were an audience and we knew these brands had a lot of money to spend to reach our readers, these early adoptive consumers. Yet the problem was is that so much money was extracted by intermediaries that between the brand and the audience, it really was just a drip. There wasn't a conversation. So I sold Women's Sports and Fitness to Condé Nast and took that group of early adoptive consuming women that I really were passionate about, my, my wife, Bridget, and her friends, and moved them from kind of the bottom of the funnel to be the audience, to the top of the funnel, to be inspiration, to do strategy and design work. And we created a company called Radar Communications, which really became amazing. Wrote a few books and coined the word co-creation. Helped Jeff Howe write this book called Co-Crowdsourcing. It was a really fun ride to think about how do early adoptive consumers, passionate people, really get into your brand and help people build new products and new marketing messages. That led me to Alex Bogusky, company called Crispin Porter Bogusky. He called me one day was when I was in Boulder and wanted to go for a bike ride. He just moved there. We rode and I was in the middle of selling radar to WPP and having an awful time of it. You know, lots of negotiations. They were trying to dink me down on price. And Alex was like, why would you sell it to WPP? Why don't you just, well, let's just merge Crispin and radar and we'll just do some cool shit. Well, there are 45 of them in Boulder, about 100 globally, and 14 of us. Three years later, uh, 1,200 of us globally, 750 in the Boulder office. And uh, one of the things we did was we had a client called Brahmo Motorcycles, and we didn't have enough creative staff. Here we were, the creative agency of the decade, right? But we didn't have enough staff to work for a client. So we did this really stupid thing, at least the market thought it was. And that was we crowdsourced creative, right? How could the creative agency of the decade, crowdsource creative. That was stupid. At least the industry thought so. But for Alex and I, it was awesome. All of a sudden, the rest of the industry was working for us. Like, we had the best talent. A thousand people did the project. Really, really amazing people. We got amazing ideas. In fact, better ideas than we got from the work we were getting in-house. So we thought, hmm, that's pretty interesting. Proposed that to Miles Nadal at MDC. He was like, no way am I going to destroy my company with crowdsourcing. So I went out and started a company called Victors and Spoils. It's an agency built on crowdsourcing principles. And it was quite the wild ride. We started in 2009 in April. And in the morning, there were three of us in my garage. The New York Times did a half-page article on us. That night, there were 1,000 people in our, com in our community. 
that we were ready to go. And Dish Network gave us $5 million worth of advertising. So talk about zero to, to 60 in no time. But we were onto something, right? We had this idea that, hey, why don't we take the most passionate people in the world, we don't care if they're creatives or strategists or consumers, and allow them to do great work for great brands. You mentioned Harley-Davidson. They were one of our great brands. And we did lots of cool stuff, turning on and activating their, their amazing fan base. Got super lucky. I was at TED, the TED conference, and uh, met this guy, David Jones, who was the CEO of Havas. Really, really cool guy. And, you know, all these holding companies were really scared about what we were doing. But David walked up to me and said, instead of throwing rocks at the glass houses of the holding companies, why don't you just come on here and, and join me and, and help me build this one anew? So I went to Havas as chief innovation officer and tried to help them figure out. I mean, the question we had was, hey, we work with a client like Peugeot, right? And we charge tens of millions of dollars and we give them five creative teams, 10 creatives. Why can't we have a digital platform that taps into our 20,000 folks that work for, for Havas globally? Why can't a kid in Shanghai answer a brief on a digital platform to be able to do something really cool to inspire those 10 creatives? The C-level loved it, our clients loved it, the 350 global CEOs hated it. Right? The idea that the CEO in Shanghai was going to have to like, watch some young kid become famous on his watch when he spent 20 years doing it, it really affected the identity of it, right? So I quit Havas and joined. Uh, one of the things that was cool about the Havas experience was that Harvard Business School did a couple case studies on us that are pretty fun. One is on VNS and one is on Havas and, and its willingness to change. And we really documented it. It's a, a multimedia case study and we really documented the journey. It was so funny. On tape, one of the guys, heads of Havas said, oh, this crowd, you know, creative stuff. It's sort of like 100 monkeys punching things out. Sooner or later, some good idea will come out. So a lot of tension in, inside. So I decided after Bridget and everything else that I was going to quit. But one of the main reasons I quit Havas that I noticed in retrospect was really these big companies, holding companies, they're really passion deserts, right? They, there's so many meetings and compliance issues and IP issues. You can't get anything done. You don't have any time to be creative. I'm an entrepreneur. It was just really, really difficult for me to figure that out. So I think we're in the midst of a passion crisis. And Ryan mentioned passion. That's what I love about being here, because I, I, I like the idea of a bunch of people being vulnerable and willingness to just be passionate about what they're into and, and share that. And great brands and agencies need great, passionate talent. So that's what I've been doing lately. I'm trying to figure this out at Harvard and, and a company I, I have called Open Assembly with a couple of Harvard professors. Like, what does it mean? How do we get the best talent to work on brands and to really lean into stuff? So I feel like there are four steps. I mean, some of the research we've been doing and it really mirrors like the recovery I've had to do from Bridget, right, and from the avalanche. Like, how do you step? What steps do you take to kind of rebuild a life? What steps do you take to rebuild a, a, a brand, to rebuild an agency? And I think for a lot of people right now, because of digital transformation and, and the environment that we live in, a lot of organizations have to really rebuild themselves and think about what steps do I need to take? So this is the Laboratory for Innovation Science at Harvard. I'm the executive in residence there. Um, a guy by the name of Kareem Lakani built the lab. His mentor is a guy by the name of Eric Von Hippel. And Eric wrote a really cool book called Democratization of Innovation back in 1989. He was talking about users building new products back then. A really amazing book if you guys get a chance to read it, but, but pretty old now. So one of the things we've been doing at the lab for a while is thinking about 
how do you get more people involved? How do you get this kind of adjacent knowledge? What, what does that mean? The lab was built from the, we, we first did a project with NASA to build the Center of Collaborative Innovation for, for NASA. So like I said, four steps. First one being learn. Let me tell you a story about potato chips, right? Do you know how like oil gets off potato chips? Anybody have any idea? The way that oil is removed from potato chips is that it's, the rack shakes, right? And the problem is to get more oil off potato chips, you have to shake the rack harder. But when the rack shakes harder, the potato chips break, right? So they had a problem. Frito-Lay had an issue, got to figure this out. The customers were complaining about, you know, oily potato chips. They went to a platform called Inicentive, and Inicentive said, first thing, let's reframe the question, right? Instead of saying, let's remove oil from potato chips, why don't we say, how do we remove a viscous substance from a thin wafer? They put that up on the platform, and in two days, a violinist came up with a solution. Anybody know what the solution was? Well, she knew that by changing the sound, right, that she could break a glass with her violin. And she knew that if you could meet the same frequency as the oil with a sound, all the oil would just jump off the chips. So that was the solution. You didn't need to shake the chips. You didn't need to break the chips. But if you're a mechanical engineer and you're thinking about things a certain way, you would never get to that answer, right? That, that's, a, that's an adjacent knowledge that's, that's really powerful. I think all of us can tap into this. So let's get down into a little bit more of the work we do at Harvard. This is a project we did this last year and it's really, really exciting to me. Essentially, one of the big issues in lung cancer, right, is marking up in the CAT scan the boundaries of the cancer. Like, where is it? And, and to make sure that you don't cut too much healthy tissue and don't leave too much of the cancer. Well, there are 11 guys at the Harvard Medical School. They're the best in the world at this. There's a three-month wait for them to be able to look at your scan and mark it up. So really dangerous, right? If you've got lung cancer, you don't want to wait for three months. So the project was to take a crowd of data scientists on TopCoder to compete and create an algorithm that could replace this talent, right? Is there a way to take that really amazing talent and scale it globally, right? What a cool project. So we took a bunch of the CAT scans, a bunch of the knowledge that those 11 folks had done over years, added some new radiologists to really try to figure out, some, create some more data, put it up on a platform called TopCoder. In three weeks, a, a guy in Romania came up with an algorithm and pre-state was, it took 18 minutes for these radiologists to do the work at about 70% accuracy, right? The algorithm, five seconds. And 12% improvement in accuracy. The thing that I get really excited about, that's a really cool thing, right? But what Harvard Medical School is gonna do is they're gonna create a web app that they're gonna launch. They're gonna make that available globally where you can put up your scans and immediately, if you're in Namibia, you will have the best markup of any you know, CAT scan or in Kenya, wherever you are. Everybody, the democratization of technology allows this to happen. Just such an amazing project. But it wouldn't have happened with doing it the old way, right? It takes kind of all of us working together in that adjacent knowledge again. We do a bunch of work for NASA. In fact, the lab started with NASA as its own or as its first project. And one of the things we did when we started with, the, with NASA was built the NASA Tournament Lab. We connected a bunch of different platforms and NASA work, which is their in-house work, to try to solve problems. NASA has gotten to be so good at this, the federal government in the US uses the NASA Tournament Lab to do all their kind of open innovation experiments. One of my favorites was 
if you're an astronaut out walking in space, it's really, really dangerous, right, if you have a sunspot, because sunspot has this boost of radiation that can kill you. So for 10 years and about approximately estimated $10 million, eight heliophysicists spent the time to figure out a prediction model, right? And after 10 years and $10 million, they got it to be an hour and a half prediction, 50% accuracy. Pretty good. At least you weren't going out there and going to get killed by the radiation. NASA really needed to improve this, right? They needed to improve the predictability. They put it up, on, again, on, on a platform called TopCoder, same platform as we talked about earlier, and a retired cell phone engineer that had some heliophysics in undergraduate in 20 days figured out the problem and was able to advance it to eight hours and 75% predictability. So this huge advancement, all for $20,000. So $10 million, 10 years, you know, four times improvement for $20,000 in 20 days. Lots of changes. And as the guys at NASA, they describe this, right? Like this, this famous old quote, most of the right people don't work for you, no matter who they are. Doesn't matter if you're a brand or an agency or even NASA, right? How do you get everybody else to work for you to get really solve your problems, whether it's passionate consumers for brands or NASA scientists? One of the things they've done, one of the things that the lab built was a platform called at NASA at work. We use a, a platform called IdeaScale. But one of the things that's so impressive to me is 20,000 employees and contractors participate in this. It's not just the employees inside, it's their whole ecosystem of folks participate in idea generation, participate in creating momentum, new ideas for folks really kind of trying to find these, these ways to overcome big disruptions. And the results, we just completed a study of 314 projects. We saw 94% of the projects were you know, satisfied with the results, and 74% of the solutions were implemented at a cost savings of $24 million. So what we're seeing in open versus closed talent in, in over 1,100 projects is that we're seeing as good or equal results four to five times faster and eight to 10 times cheaper. It's the same results we saw at VNS. We didn't have the kind of quantification that we do now at, at Harvard. So great ideas do come from everywhere. One of these that's probably heard a lot of news, like gig economies, there's lots of tension around that these days, right? And what I see is like we started back in early 2000 with the idea of co-creation that became crowdsourcing that's now kind of morphed into the, the gig economy. And well, I think the gig economy is great. I think it, it devalues work, that there's some real issues with the idea, that there needs to be something, a reframing, a, a new mindset around this. And Lee Jin from Andreessen Horowitz has been thinking a lot about this. So she's really reframing it in this way, to say, yeah, it's the gig economy, but really what we want, right, is we want platforms and technology that allows people to do what they're really, really passionate about, right? Wouldn't it be great if I'm a school teacher and I have a killer you know, school plan, and I'm, I'm in my 50s and I've been doing it for a long time, wouldn't it be great to have a platform to put up my school lessons and be able to monetize that? Well, there, there is one, and, and teachers now are making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of selling their lesson plans. What a cool thing. Isn't that the way the world should work? We have this cognitive surplus. Shouldn't we have the technology to be able to go sell it, see the value of it, create that momentum? I had the most amazing experience lately. There's this company called TopCoder that we talked about. They have a million and a half people in their community, right? And one of the things they do really, really well is they have this thing called TopCoder Open. 
And Top Coder Open is, is during the year they have these contests, and the best 110 coders in the world get to come to the Top Coder Open. They had it at Houston this year. What was so amazing to me about this is that these guys from around the world have earned their way in. They're, they're passionate about this work, right? They're, they're super passionate about algorithms and UX and all kinds of different designs and, and, and coding. But the thing that really, really blew me away about being at this was that they had a panel with Steve Rader from NASA ran, and they talked about why they did the work on TopCoder. One guy talked about, he, he worked in the algorithm area and was in this contest. He said, you know, I used to work, I've got three PhDs and I live in a village in Poland and I used to work a regular job and it was okay. You know, I did some interesting stuff and met some interesting people. Now I work on top code and I make $750,000 a year writing algorithms, right? This guy in the middle of Poland that just lives in this village, has a great lifestyle, does, gets to do what he really loves to do from a lifestyle standpoint, but can make money. Another guy was talking about his UX experience, and he said that he makes $405,000 a year working on UX projects. But he said the real key to him was the fact that even though he made $450,000 a year, he only worked 60% of the time. That 40% of the time he dedicated to learning, and the platform allowed him to not only make money, but also learn, right? And so as we thought about this from, from the work at Harvard, one of the things we've noticed is that the average freelancer spends 15% of their time learning. They have to, right? If you're on Upwork or another one of those platforms, you've got to constantly know what are the programs, what's happening, how do I get better at what I do? Unfortunately, the way companies work these days is, as we did a survey of companies, the average company dedicates 0.03% of somebody's salary to specific job training. So when you've got a world that's changing so, so fast, right? How can you compete? You've got a guy over here that's spending 15% of his time and sometimes 40% of their time learning. And over here, the company you're working for gives you 0.03% of your salary to kind of go learn something and probably on your off hours, right? Just doesn't seem fair. It's not the future. I ran into this. I've been trying to figure out this passion thing for a while, right? And, and I think one of the things that I'm intrigued with in, in passion is that when you read articles in Harvard Business Review and other places like that, passion's a scary thing. You know, make sure your employees aren't too passionate. Don't, you know, don't let them get out of hand. Like, passion's a bad thing. For me as an entrepreneur, that's all you have, right? You've got an idea and a bunch of passion and you're just gonna go for it. So I found this book recently. It's, uh, it's from Oxford University. And it's a compendium of all the new research around passion, the theory, the research, and the applications. And one of the things I thought was super, super interesting about this is that there's this dual model that's emerging, kind of the dual model of passion. I think this is a super important thing to think about as we think about how do we get the right kind of you know, early adopted consumers, the right kind of talent into our brands, and what do we do with those folks, right? How do we make sure that it's not destructive, right, but, but really constructive? Somebody of mine, Alex Honnold, and another friend, Jimmy Chin, did this movie called Free Solo. Pretty crazy, huh? I'm, Alex is definitely... He's a character. I would call him an obsessive, passionate guy, right? Like, you don't want to go rock climbing with Alex, probably, unless you're really, really close to the ground. But he's a scary dude. He's super intense. He's hard to be with. But he's really, really good, right? He's the kind of guy that you want to put in a room to figure out something super, super hard by himself, not to build a team around. So Conrad Anker, David Lama. Conrad's a good friend. He, he's really what I would consider kind of harmonious passion. He exhibits this idea of, you know, Conrad's always on great expeditions. Everybody on the expedition loves being on an expedition with him. Sometimes they make the goal, sometimes they don't. 
but everybody has a great time. Everybody creates this community. He's a community builder, right? He's the guy that's like, man, that was an awesome trip. Next time we'll get to the goal. Next time we'll get to the summit. We learned a lot. We got a lot done. And that's what they're finding in the research, right? Harmonious passions are defined as high priority goals with emotionally important outcomes. That this idea that there's a way to decipher passion from being this obsessive, dangerous thing that Harvard Business Review would talk about in business writing, something to keep out of your company, and something that's really intrinsic to building great teams and great brands. So what they found in the research is that teams that have harmonious passion exhibit intrinsic motivation, transformational leadership, cult, great word, organizational behavior, and task autonomy. Who wouldn't want a company or a brand that runs like this, right? That has passionate consumers that are willing to launch into things and, and get, to know, get to know things. Back to women's sports and fitness. You know, when we did women's sports and fitness, this was so amazing to me. In fact, it really changed my mind about who and how you work with consumers, right? And there's a book called Diffusions of Innovation written in the 50s by a guy by the name of Everett Rogers. Anybody heard of it? Have you guys heard of it? He created this thing called the diffusion curve, right? And the history of the diffusion curve was that Everett Rogers was a social scientist at University of Iowa, and he was trying to help the agriculture department distribute hybrid corn seeds, right? And one of the problems they found with distributing hybrid corn seeds when they started creating that is they went to the innovators, right? I mean, Ryan's an innovator. It's a great example, right? We all admire Ryan. Ryan's out there doing stuff. I, I could never be Ryan. He's just got too much energy. He's awesome, right? And that's what happens in a small village, right? It's like the innovator's the guy that buys the new tractor, that has the new truck, that has everything right. Like, I can never be that person. But there are these early adopters, right? They take early adopters, take the things from the innovators and say, okay, they're the opinion leaders, right? They're the folks that say, okay, I can take this and I can move it along, right? They're the people in the marketplace that believe that other people in the community believe. And that's what happened with the hybrid corn seeds. Once they focused on early adoptive consumers, things started distributing across the chasm. There is a chasm between these innovators and early adopters and, and the rest of the folks. But if you think about it and put the lens of a passion on, I think you can see that as well, right? There's the passion economy. These are like entrepreneurs. They're folks like Ryan. They're doing, they're out there doing really interesting things. They want to, you know, people who want the newest things, they want to be passionate about it. And there's a big market back to the Havas idea that people just want to make a living and do their thing and get things done and go home and, and, and do stuff. But they don't really, you know, like the passion is a bad thing. So how do, we, how do we jump that chasm? Like, what do we do? What is, what's a mechanism that, we, that would allow us as brands to really get those passionate people involved, but also keep the main bulk of our talent that we need to have get things done? People that want complete solutions and convenience. To me, the best and easiest way to cross this passion gap is to be an open brand by co-creating with the most passionate freelancers and customers as I talked about. So let's talk a little bit about experimentation. I think that's if the first idea is learn, then how do you experiment? And I feel like this is something, you know, this is a, a, a construct that I created after Bridget passed away. And what I found was it's so easy when you're an entrepreneur, right? You're in this learn mode and you're going along and you're saying, okay, I got to reinvent everything, right? My wife's gone. My family's gone. I've got two kids that are, you know, 17 years old, struggling. Harry that found Bridget, you know, has had a really, really difficult time overcoming that. Both of my boys were adopted from Russia, we adopted him when they were nine months old, so he has you know, some, some abandonment issues. And so you know, trying to find, like, how do I learn? What do I create? 
not only in, in my life, but also in business, what it's meant is that you've got to be where you are, right? Like as an entrepreneur, you always want to say, I learned that. Okay, I'm going to implement it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to build it. I'm going to scale it, right? But I find in life, what you have to do is say, it's time to learn. This is awesome. Let's just learn, right? Let's not experiment. Let's not build anything. This today is about learning, and I love it, right? So let's just be. And that's really hard for me, like I said, as an entrepreneur. But there is a time, right? Once you've learned enough, once you feel it, once you feel in your bones, you can say, okay, I've metabolized that. I've learned enough. It's time to go experiment, right? I think the experimentation thing is a really, really important part of it. So one of the big issues and tensions, I think, in the marketplace, right, is that our bureaucracies and our companies have made it harder and harder to get things done, right? And we just finished a Harvard Business School case study on Deloitte Pixel, which is Deloitte's kind of open innovation crowd platform that's trying to figure out how do they reinvent things. They've been doing pretty well. They've been going for four or five years, but they've really, really hit their stride because of this. They connected with a platform called Expertify, 30,000 data scientists. You know, Deloitte needs to hire data scientists. That's the future of business. Yet Google and Facebook own all those folks, right? That's where everybody wants to go. So what does Deloitte do? Well, they have to take four to five months to hire a data scientist. It really slows down the process. But by going to an open platform of people around the globe and be a, being able to work remote, you can take that four to five months to four to five days. One of the things that has inspired me about my conversations with Ryan is that's what the community is doing as well, right? This idea of 36 days to 36 hours. I think that's a really, really amazing thing and it's something that's really critical because we have to use technology to get beyond the bureaucracy we've created and the, and the systems that we have, right? To take the friction out of systems. If you need talent, I don't need talent next week or next month or next year. I want some talent today, right? I want passionate people to lean in, make a comment on my product, like put something up that inspires me to do something new. Like how do I get that cycle faster and faster? So I'm really stoked with what uh, Ryan and the team's doing. I think it's gonna be a big deal. So build, build's another, place that you've got, you've got to kind of go through the experiment phase. And I you know in my own experience at Harvard, one of the things that's been super frustrating as an entrepreneur is that, you know, like this case study we just finished with Mike Tushman, it's 15 pages. Anybody have any idea how long that took to write? 22 months. Yeah, 15 pages, 22 months. But that's the pace of academia, right? It's just, it's so crazy. So, when you're in the experiment phase, I'm so glad that I took 22 months to write that because it gave me so much deep knowledge. We got to experiment and build new models and try new things. But man, I, I'm, not, I'm not built to do that. It's hard. One of the things that's inspiring me right now is that Freelancer is another platform out of Australia, pretty cool platform. They've got 30 million people globally. And they're starting to really help companies build their own platforms, right? And I think this is the next step, right? If you talk about experimentation and being able to tap into platforms like Communo or Topcoder or Expertify, this to me is the next evolution of building these new systems and overcoming these disruptions, these technology disruptions. One of the big frustrations for Arrow, right? Arrow has 16,000 employees, 5,000 employees are contract engineers. And their job is, if you have a glass, right? If we had this glass or this bottle, you know, maybe you'd want to chip in it, right? You want to know how much water's in there, what the temperature is. Arrow would, would help you source it. They'd go to the factory, they'd send an engineer out to the factory and be able to figure that out. The problem is IoT's exploding, not only vertically, but horizontally. They can't hire enough employees to figure all that stuff out. So what do you do, right? Why not create a massive community and be the curators? 
So that's what they're doing with Freelancer. Though we anticipate the future, that up to 30% of R&D spend could leverage a model where Arrow provides technical concierge and project management to a vast network of high-end engineering talent. Wouldn't it be better to have 50,000 engineers around the world, the, the guys that specifically understand exactly how to do that in the bottle, than one guy that does that maybe 120th of his time? What a cool thing. But it's a radical reframe, right? It's a radical reframe of work, of jobs, of benefits. Those are things that are really, really hard. And we're starting to experiment with some of those things. Zurich Insurance is really looking at creating benefits and retirement plans for freelance workers and gig workers and passion economy workers. And I think that's going to be an important part of this whole evolution of, of work. I mean, we're in a really disruptive age right now. So the fourth stage is really master. Like, how do we master the skills, right? If we start with learn, right? Like, when I think about it in the, in, the, in the context of reframing my life since Bridget, right? I had to get out there and learn. <laughs> learn how to walk again. Learn how to be without a partner. Learn how to get up in the morning, right? Learn how to take care of kids that have been incredibly traumatized. And once we did that, then, you know, how do we experiment with things? You know, how do I reconnect with somebody as beautiful as Emily? How do I be able to kind of get beyond the trauma, yet still have the trauma in my life, really still honor the past, and then build. You know, as, as Emily and I think about this new family and this new experience, we're kind of in that cool building phase of like, what is this? How does it work? This is really awesome, right? Like, let's not forget the past. Uh, let's do things. And one of the things that, that we did do is we, we built a 77,000 square feet new hospital, I, myself and some other guys in Boulder, a new mental health hospital called the Delacava Center that provides 18, thanks. Yeah, it's, it, it, Bridget was an icon in Boulder, and, and so the community came together, and we raised $45 million and created a new facility. One of the things that was really tragic was that Bridget was in an old, shitty facility that was really scary, run down, like me most mental health hospitals are. And now this new facility has 18 beautiful single rooms that really are going to help to take care of things in the, in the future. And, and so... You know, as we look to master, part of mastering is giving back, right? Part of mastery is like saying, this is what happened. This is the way the world works, right? This is where we are. And so I would really encourage you in these last few minutes is like the most important thing, no matter if it's disruption in your life or disruption in your business, I think it starts with reframing disruption, right? Rethinking, like what is disruption and how do I go forward? Like if disruption is this avalanche that's all-consuming, that brings up all this trauma that's really, really scary that you can't get over, maybe, maybe what we should do is we should really reframe that. We should really reframe it to be a wave, right? I've had the chance to surf a lot around the world, and one of my favorite surf experiences was at a place called Cloudbreak in an island called Tabarua in Fiji. It's one of the biggest and scariest waves. It's a wave that, you know, can get up to, you know, 30 feet. But the problem is right below the wave is dry reef. So it's, it's very consequential. But it's so amazing to sit out there in the water, right, to watch these avalanches coming. You can see them from a mile away, these black lines that are coming at you. It's no different than skiing a slope and realizing when you, when you start skiing a slope and the crack happens, that the avalanches are happening, right, this big, tumultuous area, yet... It's really exciting when you're a surfer because you've got these tools, right? You've got this ability. And you're not trying to figure out, like, how do I avoid it? But how do I engage with it? How do I take this disruption, this massive annihilation that could happen and really use it to my advantage, right? Like, the one, of, one of the amazing things to me, being a surfer later in life, 
is there's a sweet spot on a wave, right? You get into it, no matter how big and how destructive, you can also, you can, you can start milking the power, right? You can feel the power. The power actually excels and, and starts putting you in a place that is super magical. And that's what I hope that everybody takes away from here today in this experience at being at this gathering is that let's make it surfing, man. Let's make these waves. Let's find the sweet spot. Every conversation we have, what's the sweet spot? How do we take it away? How do we give back to the people around us so that we can accelerate that conversation to the next level, right? How do we use the power of this wave that we have right here to be a part of it? So thanks for having me. Thanks, it's been an honor to be here and I really enjoy enjoyed it so far and I'm psyched for the next couple of days. And may, uh, may all of your most difficult disruptions become beautiful waves, just waiting you to carry passion into new reality. Thank you. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information. John reminded us that we will all be disrupted, personally and professionally. It's unavoidable. So the only question is how well are we prepared for that disruption? You know, for me, I want to be prepared by not waiting for disruption to happen to me, but rather do my best to disrupt myself, ideally on my terms. I really like John's metaphor of this giant wave. You know, many are gonna be crushed by that tsunami, but others are gonna learn how to surf that wave. And that sounds like a lot more fun. I'm in love with all of John's stories and case studies of efficiency and productivity that John shared about firms that have learned how to reach beyond their four walls to access subject matter experts. I just find it so compelling. In fact, it makes me wonder why any of us are still married to this old model of forcing full-time employment contracts upon the talent that we want to utilize. John's speech reminded me of something that I learned once, which is that over 50% of Google's talent are not full-time employees. I think we can all agree that Google is one of the most successful and most innovative companies on the planet. If we want to be more like them, Shouldn't we do the types of things that they do, which includes thinking very differently about how we staff our companies? Anyway, as I said in the intro, John's a different type of speaker than we normally feature on this podcast. But I think it's important that we don't just talk about why or what, but also how. Business leaders need to attract people who really give a damn, who are passionate, and they need to learn how to better tap into adjacent knowledge. And in order to do those things, they must accept a very simple reality, which is that the best talent in the world doesn't want to work for you. 
but the good news is they are accessible and willing to contribute to your cause if you just make it easier for them to participate on a part-time basis. That's really what the gig economy or the freelancer revolution or the open source talent movement, call it what you will, but that's what it's all about. And I'm so grateful that smart and kind people like John, who are leaders in this space, are willing to show us the way. Until next time. Once again, this is your host, Chris Nealand, and you've been listening to Cult Brand Secrets, where we explore the great speakers and insights shared at the gathering of Forbes' top-rated business summit. Learn more about the gathering at cultgathering.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps. Cult Brand Secrets is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Special thanks to Connor Standish and Laura Winter for their assistance in making this podcast possible. Also, I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, as well as executive producers, David Moss and Bridget Coyne. I'm your host, Chris Nealon. Thanks for listening. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.